29th of September 1978. 15-year-old Mary Vincent is hitching a lift to her grandfather's house in LA. A van pulls up and Mary is offered a lift by a 51-year-old guy with a beer gut wearing overalls. Two other hitchhikers she's standing with warn her not to accept the lift, but she ignores them. She would soon find out this decision would be a grave mistake. Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. So tonight I have a listener request from Danielle Gruel. Hi, Danielle. It's an amazing story of survival under the most gruelling of circumstances. It's also a story of how the justice system can be so broken and how some victims will fall between the cracks and that they themselves endure a life sentence. It's also a story that has a tragic end and it also has an inspirational ending. So, who's Mary Vincent? Mary was born in 1963 to strict parents Lucy and Herb Vincent. Lucy was a dealer in a casino and Herb fixed poker machines. She was the middle kid of seven kids, a little rebellious liked to wear makeup and jig or skip school. She was a great dancer and Mary herself says, I'd have been a lead dancer at the Lido de Paris in Las Vegas, then Hawaii and Australia. I'm serious. I was really good on my feet and my dance instructor had it all worked out. One day her sister warned her that her father was on his way home. He had a migraine and was angry at her. Mary decided to run away and stay with her boyfriend in Salsalito, California. She was doing it rough, sleeping with the boyfriend in unlocked cars and behind dumpsters until he was arrested for allegedly raping a high school girl. So Mary was still homeless, sleeping rough but sometimes she'd stay with an uncle in Soquel, California. Finally, she decided she wanted to go back to LA and stay with her grandfather in Corona, California. Now, being the 70s, lots of people hitchhiked to get around. Most people knew they had to be careful who they accepted a lift from, and Mary, although only being 15... She'd hitched rides quite often and felt she could take care of herself. So it's the 29th of September 1978. Mary is standing with two other hitchhikers at a corner in Berkeley, which was a popular spot to get a lift. A blue van pulled up and out got Larry Singleton. 
He was wearing blue overalls, balding, had a beer gut and was looked to be about 50 years old. He offered Mary a lift, saying that he only had room for one person. The two other hitchhikers with Mary could see his van was empty and warned her not to go with him. Mary thought to herself that she was extremely tired and was sure she could handle herself against this old guy. Surely she could outfight and outrun him as she was so young and he was quite old. In fact, she saw him as a grandfather type figure and of little threat to her. She accepted the lift and they drove off towards Interstate 5 on their way to LA. Larry told Mary that he was actually headed for Reno, but was happy to take her to LA. Now, you sort of might get some red flags here. From Berkeley to Reno, you drive northeast, and to say you are happy to make a detour to LA, well, LA from Berkeley is totally in the opposite direction. Berkeley to Corona is 675 kilometres or uh, 419 miles, so it isn't a little detour. Back to Reno from Corona is 757 kilometres or 470 miles. So this offer for a ride is really sounding out alarm bells. So Mary lights up a smoke and she sneezes. Larry reaches out to touch her on the back of the neck. He says, let's see if you're sick and tries to pull her towards him. Mary pulled away and leant against the door as far out of his reach as she could. She was pissed off for being hit on so early in the ride. Now really, alarm bells should be ringing, but she did think that if she needed to, she could handle this fat old balding man. Okay, now up to this point, I've called the guy giving Mary a lift, Larry but I will call him by his last name after this, as I usually do for the bad guys and the bad girls in the cases I tell you about. So let's get a bit of background into Singleton before I go back to the van driving towards Interstate 5 on its way to LA. Lawrence Bernard Singleton, born July 28, 1927, in Tampa, Florida. He grew up in Tampa and dropped out of school at age 16. He worked on the railroad for a few weeks and then got a job in a shipyard and he did that for about a year. He went to maritime school in St. Petersburg, then joined the Merchant Marine and went to sea in 1945, aged 17. In 1950, he was drafted into the army and went to fight in Korea. In 1952, he was honourably discharged from the army and returned to the Merchant Marine School where he attended officer training. He obtained his master's licence and became a captain. He married Shirley Ann Powells in 1958 and they had a daughter, Deborah Ann, in 1963. 
Now, Shirley died in 1977. So we go back to the 29th of September, 1978. 15-year-old Mary Vincent is in Singleton's van after accepting a lift to LA. So Singleton has just made a pass at Mary and she made it very clear she was not interested. Singleton then told Mary that he needed to quickly stop off at his house to pick up some laundry and if she could help him carry it to the van. Mary agreed and settled into the ride, although she was a little concerned that Singleton was starting to drink from a milk carton filled with booze. Mary, being tired, soon drifted off to sleep and when she awoke, she noticed that they were not going in the right direction and that they had missed the turnoff to Interstate 5 and were going towards Nevada. She felt around her seat and found a long pointed stick. She grabbed it and threatened Singleton to turn around right now and that she could take care of herself. Singleton slowed down, turned around and apologised, telling her, I'm just an honest man who made a mistake. I'm not going to hurt you. They were now on I-5 and going towards LA as it started to get dark. Singleton pulled off the freeway, telling Mary that he needed to find a place so he could take a leak. He drove down Del Porto Canyon Road for a distance and then pulled into a smaller road away from prying eyes. Singleton got out of the car and walked over to take a piss and it's not clear if Mary also relieved herself or she just got out of the van to stretch her legs. Anyway, Mary noticed her shoelace was undone and bent over to tie it up as she thought that if she did have to outrun this guy, it would be best to have her shoelaces tied. Okay, a bit of a violence trigger warning. As she bent over, Singleton came from behind and bashed her over the back of the head with a sledgehammer, basically knocking her out. He hit her again and then slid open the side door of the van, grabbed her and threw her in, shouting, Don't scream or I'll kill you. Singleton then stripped Mary of her clothes, tied her hands behind her, and Mary started to come too. He then began raping her. She asked him why he was doing this, but Singleton didn't respond. He raped her several times, with Mary pleading for him to set her free to let her go, and that she won't tell anyone. Singleton then naked himself, got in the driver's seat and drove further down the road. He then forced her to drink a cup full of booze, threatening to kill her if she disobeyed. He then raped her again. Mary could not do anything. She was bound. It was night time and they were in the middle of fuck-fuck. Singleton then proceeded to rape Mary again, and when he was finished, he fell asleep. Mary couldn't do anything to get away. She just lay there, bound, bloodied, and frightened. 
Mary noticed that the sun was about to rise and Singleton woke up. He cut her hands loose and told her to get out of the van and lie on the edge of the road. Singleton then went to his toolbox, grabbed an axe and walked around to Mary lying on the ground. He grabbed her left hand and shouted, You want to be free? I'll set you free. Singleton then brought the axe down onto her left arm, severing it just below the elbow. Mary tried desperately to fight him off, kicking and screaming. She grabbed onto his left arm and held him tight, trying to fight him off, but then he started to hack into her, this time cutting off her right arm. Singleton stood back, flicking his arm, trying to release the death grip Mary's severed right hand had on him. Mary fell back, but was confused as she could still feel that she had a grip on Singleton. Mary could then feel all the pain, the sharpness, the burning as the blood flowed out of her body. As Mary lay limp on the ground, Singleton was sure that if she wasn't dead, she would soon be, and he dragged her body towards the edge of the cliff. From there, he threw her over the side. The fall was about 10 metres or about 30 feet. He then walked down and dragged her body into a concrete water pipe, then went back up the cliff and drove off, certain that she would be dead. As he drove off, he threw Mary's forearms into a river along the way, convinced that even if they found Mary's body, they wouldn't be able to identify her easily without fingerprints. The thing is, Mary's not dead. Arms hacked off, thrown off a cliff and left for dead. She was still conscious. In her mind, she knew she couldn't pass out, that she had to survive, to survive so that she could make sure that this monster that had raped her, mutilated her body and left her for dead could not do this to anyone else. She knew she had to stay awake. With the blood flowing from her arms, she ground the bloodied stumps into the dirt to make some sort of mud and to help stem the bleeding. Now, let me just stop here a second so that sinks in. She's had both her arms hacked off below the elbow, blood is pissing out, and she has the mind about her to rub the stumps into the dirt to make some sort of mud pack to stem the bleeding. All of this after being constantly raped and thrown off a cliff. Now, Mary is determined to survive. She says she heard a voice and it was in her mind, her heart and her soul. It said, I can't go to sleep. He's going to do this to somebody else. I can't let that happen. 
So totally exhausted, bleeding, and without her hands, Mary starts to climb up the side of the cliff. Now she's trying to keep the stubs of her arms up so that her muscles wouldn't fall out. Eventually, she was able to make it back up the 30-foot cliff where she was able to hear traffic in the distance. She was naked, covered in blood, staggering along the deserted road with the stumps of her arms in the air, trying to keep the blood and everything from falling out. As she slowly walked towards the traffic noise, in the distance, Mary saw a red convertible with two guys in it. As she flagged it down and it drew closer, it suddenly turned around and sped off. I mean, fuck's sake, some people. It would have been a terrifying sight, but Bumfagalunga driving off when someone who is so obviously injured, naked, and in need of help, you drive off and leave them? This is definitely when you hope karma kicks in for those fucktards. Anyway, as they drive off, Mary is thinking she'll probably die on the road, but she is still determined to go on. Eventually, an old truck, or ute for the Aussies, approaches her. The couple inside, who were on their honeymoon, quickly bundle her up and speed off with her to get help. They call emergency services and Mary is airlifted to hospital. Mary receives medical assistance and is able to describe to a police sketch artist her attacker in such detail that when it's shown on TV, Singleton's neighbour recognises him and calls police. Singleton is arrested and he denies he had anything to do with the crime. Eventually, he concedes that he was with two other guys one named Larry, and that they were the ones that attacked, raped, mutilated, and left Mary for dead. Funny how he uses his own name as the name of the other attacker. Anyway, he says that Mary offered them sex for money and that she was just a whore who got violent and then his acquaintances attacked her. Police didn't believe any of it and he was charged and would be found guilty on April the 20th, 1979 of forcible rape, two counts of oral copulation by force, kidnapping, forcible sodomy, mayhem, and attempted murder. Okay, now I've heard a lot of people talk about the charges, and if you're like me, you'll be asking mayhem. What the fuck is mayhem? Well, maybe in general language you might hear someone saying that someone's causing mayhem, as in fucking around or being a dick. But mayhem is a lot more serious than that. Mayhem, under the law of England and Wales, originally consisted of the intentional and wanton removal of a body part that would handicap a person's ability to defend himself in combat. 
So cutting out an eye or chopping off an arm or a leg would be mayhem. Later on, it became expanded to encompass mutilation, disfigurement or crippling or in a crippling act. In the US, mayhem is defined as disabling or disfiguring such as rendering useless a member of another person's arms or legs. The injury must be permanent, not just a temporary loss. So back to the courtroom. In court, Singleton stuck by his story that two others must have attacked her. He told the court that Mary was a hard-bitten runaway who smoked reefers and threatened to maim him and accuse him of rape if he didn't drive her to LA. At one point, as Mary passed by Singleton, who was just inches away from her, he said, If it's the last thing I do, I will finish the job. Now, you would think that they would lock this piece of shit up forever and throw away the key. Well, no. Even though the judge made the comment, If I had the power... I would send him to prison for the rest of his natural life. He couldn't. Because of California law at the time, Singleton got a maximum of just over 14 years minus time served on remand. Hey, but wait, there's more. Mary won a 2.56 million civil judgment against Singleton, but she got nothing a singleton was sick, unemployed, and had only $200 in the bank. Also, when she did get a small payout of a few thousand dollars from a car accident, the state took her disability pension off her as they included the few thousand she got as income and cancelled her benefits. I mean, they spend thousands housing singleton as a prisoner but there's no money for the victim, for fuck's sake. But you think, that sucks. Singleton, while in prison, filed a complaint against Mary, suing her for forcible kidnap for the purpose of robbery. This was after he said he searched his conscience and could not see a way where he could be guilty of such a crime. Now, lucky nothing came of this claim. How this guy would qualify for any parole, given his total denial that he's guilty, is beyond me. Singleton, hey, there's more. Singleton would only serve eight years of his sentence due to good behaviour. What the fucking fuck? This was because he got a day off his sentence for every day he was a good boy. So eventually his parole date's looming and you can imagine what's going on in Mary's head. This is just eight years after he's chopped her arms off, thrown her over a cliff, hoping she's dead. Now just a side note here. When Singleton's daughter Deborah heard of his impending release on parole, she asked law enforcement what she could do to keep him behind bars. Now this is what Deborah said. I asked California prison personnel what could be done to keep him in longer. And I was told there was nothing. They suggested I obtain a restraining order at the time of his release. 
Sorry, but I mean this quite sarcastically. I tell you he's a danger. I said that before the first crime. I've changed my name multiple times and I'm moving across state lines. And all you suggest, a piece of paper that will tell him exactly where I am, what my name is, and not to come within, say, 300 feet of me? It's pathetic, isn't it? Anyway, while he was in prison, Singleton sent Mary's lawyers several threatening letters. Hey, let's let him out, eh? Now, over this eight years, Mary went back to school. She was staying with Lucy and Herb, her parents. She went to school for the handicapped and was seeing a psychiatrist. Lucy said that the therapy was bringing up too many unpleasant memories for Mary and she started to get a little bit wild again. Well, you can imagine how frustrated she would be so young and to have gone through such an ordeal that it must have not only a mental effect but the physical effect on her must have just been tremendous. Herb started to collect guns and he started to plot to kill Singleton. But eventually the family sort of broke down. Herb went to Alaska but Lucy stayed in Las Vegas. When Mary graduated high school, now remember, she was only 15 when she was attacked. She felt isolated as her old friends couldn't deal with what happened to her. In the end, she did make nice friends, but hey, what a nice bunch of assholes. Mary did try doing talks in schools on the dangers of hitchhiking, but she ended up giving it up because she copped quite a few rude and demeaning comments. Therapy groups didn't help either, and Mary said in one interview that psychologists were telling me that it was harder for my family to deal with what had happened than it was for me. I mean, what's wrong with these people? How could it be harder for anyone other than Mary, for fuck's sake? Ah! So Mary's doing it hard financially. She has limited help from her parents. The media circus have told her story and have moved on to the next one. And her cheap prosthetic limbs have become rusted. Movie deals, book deals have all fallen through. But one thing I was a bit amazed by, and by amazed I mean a bit disturbed, was in researching this case, of course you're going to Google Mary Vincent. What came up time and time again was Larry Singleton's wiki page. There is no wiki for Mary. It's, the, it's as though she's the forgotten victim. Now, maybe I need to work out how to do it and start a wiki for her. But Mary is a survivor. She was able to modify her prosthetic limbs, which originally had metal fingers that moved stiffly in one direction and not side to side, She was able to modify them using parts from a broken down refrigerator and old stereo systems. So now that her fingers could move in all directions. She also made an an attachment that she can put on so that she can go bowling. So Singleton does get out of jail. 
But whenever he tries to settle down, the community rise up and force him out of town. And why wouldn't they? Eventually, officials decide to house him in a caravan inside the San Quentin prison to ride out his parole time. They make sure the perpetrator is taken care of, but fuck the victim. She can take care of herself. Now, the laws have changed since Mary was brutally attacked, so that if Singleton were to be charged today, he could get multiple life sentences served consecutively, but I guess that doesn't help Mary. So eventually, Singleton does his parole time and heads back to Florida. This really took its toll on Mary. When Singleton got out of jail... Mary overborrowed on a home loan and within months was on the streets with her two sons. She ended up living in an abandoned Arco fuel station. She has been able to get her life back together in recent years. Now, I'm not going to go deep into her relationships, but she does have two sons, Luke and Alan, who love her and help her And she's very close, in fact, to one of her husband's, her ex-husband's mother. Mary has become an artist and she focuses on powerfully upbeat women. So, Islanders, this is an amazing story of survival. When I first heard of this story, I couldn't believe Mary or anyone could survive that sort of attack. Raped, hit on the head with a sledgehammer arms cut off and thrown over a cliff, all of this in the middle of fuck fuck. Then the trauma of just trying to adapt to having such an injury, plus all the mental issues that she must be suffering. I mean, she was just 15 years old. This story has so much more to come, but this is where we take a break for part two next week. Because there is a whole lot more to come. And this time, Singleton goes the whole way. Now, as usual, at the end of the show, we shout out the new patrons of the island. Now, hi to Lana13 and Leah Cook. Thank you very much for your support. And thanks to all the existing and past patrons. Your support's very much appreciated as this is commercial free and that it's totally listener supported. I know how much people don't like ads. So if you want to become a patron of the island, just go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island where for as little as a dollar a month, you can also become a patron. Now, all funds go directly back to the island. You can also do one-off payments via PayPal, and you can do that by typing paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. You can buy me a beer. If you want stickers, koozies, pins, or key rings, you need to email me directly. Now, my email address for anything is cambo at truecrimeisland.com. I can price it up for you according to whatever you want and where you live. Now, I do have $20 and $25 loot packs available. 
they include the $25 ones include keychain, lapel pin, koozie and stickers. That also includes the postage. Now you can buy keychains, pins, koozies all by themselves. Just send me an email. I can sort out a price. Now all the other merch such as t-shirts, hoodies, tote bags, mugs of rage, all of that is via the shop at truecrimeisland.threadless.com. Now I know there's all these different True Crime Island slash blah, blah, blah. There's links to everything at the website. So if you just go to truecrimeisland.com, you can find everything there. Now, you don't have to spend money to support the show. You can rate, review and share the love. Now, the more people who know about the show, the better. If people don't know what a podcast is, get them on the bandwagon. The podcast world is absolutely amazing. Join the Facebook group. Just search for True Crime Island and join the closed group. If I don't let you in, Jason or Senga, the moderators, will. Don't forget to check out Twitter and Instagram. The island handle is at True Crime Island. You can join in the chat and there's so many other podcasts you'll find on there as well. And hi to all the followers. I think there's a few thousand now. I do have two promos tonight. One I featured a few months back from Kate Wallinger called Ignorance Was Bliss. Please have a listen to this. I'm sure you will get something from it. And the other one is Nordic True Crime. This is a great podcast dealing with cases that are not only fascinating, but you probably haven't heard of them. Well, that's about all for tonight, and lots of love to Maggie James. So this has been Cambo, and you've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to beat your browser history. Good night. So strange. Usually. I can't imagine what that's like. Do you want to? That could never happen to me. It might. Lock him away. He's pure evil. Or insane. Or human. My name's Kate. I have worked as a forensic psychologist, as well as in prisons and as a crisis clinician. My job was to figure out who gets locked up and who gets a key to find the humanity in inhumane situations. So, are you sure you really want to know? Yeah. Maybe. Because by the end of the episodes, you just might end up thinking... I felt better before I knew that. You can find me at IWB Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, sometimes Instagram, or you can email me at iwbpodcast at gmail.com. Welcome to Nordic True Crime.
We are a weekly podcast covering a wide range of crimes from Europe's most northern countries. So if you're after a smorgasbord of real crime from the dark and frozen regions of the Nordics, then give us a try. Find us on iTunes or at nordictruecrime.podbean.com on Twitter and Facebook at Nordic True Crime or on your podcast provider. And as we say in Sweden, ta hand om dig.